This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Welcome back to the Transforming Discipleship Podcast brought to you by smallgroups.com. It's a podcast designed for church leaders who are actively seeking to make disciples for Jesus Christ in the world. I hope that you're doing that, my friends. I'm your host, Oliver Hersey, and today I want to talk to you about small groups and particularly one small group experience that we see Jesus having in the Gospel of Luke. I came across this passage in the last few months, and it has struck me and stayed with me. You know how sometimes we read something, and man, oh man, it just kind of hooks into us. And this is one of those passages. And it's a small group that Jesus seemed to have been interested in forming. Not a type of small group that perhaps I've come across in my own ministry totally, and maybe you haven't either. It's a unique small group experience, and I don't even know if it kept on it happening. It seems like it just happened once, and sometimes the small group experience, the discipleship moment can just be a moment, and it happens to be in a small group setting. This particular episode happens early in Jesus' ministry. He had just got it started in the Galilee region, calling some of his first disciples to follow him. He's got a handful of young fishermen from the Galilee region, and they're all his students now. They're trying to walk like he walked, and they're going to start the movement, right, that'll last for two millennia into our lives today. And we read this interesting passage in Luke. It kind of startles us a little bit. It kind of jars us a little bit. And here it is in Luke chapter 5. I'll read it to you. Many of you probably know it or have heard it, but Luke recounts this in Luke 5, 27 through 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Now, it's important. Levi's a Jew, and he's been employed now by the Roman government to collect taxes. And so he's got to send money to Rome or probably his his headmaster. There's a tax collector who's a level above him in the Greek text. We know that he's kind of like a peon tax collector. Levi's collecting taxes. And then if he expects to make any sort of income, he's got to add a little bit uh, to that tax for himself. So it's a messy process. Taxes were high during this period and, and they were very they were very unwanted individuals. They were despised. People did not like the tax collectors. And let alone to be a Jewish tax collector of, of all things is just kind of like a double whammy, like not good. And so you have this Jewish rabbi Jesus walking after he's just called some fishermen to follow him. And he's got crowds following him and religious teachers interested in him. And he turns to look at this tax collector, Levi, and he says two words, follow me. And Levi gets up, leaves everything behind, and follows him. Let's keep reading. Verse 29, Levi holds a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees, verse 30, and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So you got Jesus, right? He's been teaching. In fact, right before this story, Jean- Jesus had just got done teaching in a, in a packed house. 
there was a guy who needed healing and their, their buddies climbed up onto the roof and dug a hole through it and lowered the guy down and Jesus heals this guy. And uh, in fact, the guy gets much more than he bargains for. He's not only healed and he can get up and walk, but he's also forgiven of his sin. And then Jesus leaves and he's walking out on this Roman road and he sees this other Jewish gentleman collecting the royal taxes. Levi is his name. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, if you're reading it there, it, it would say that his name's Matthew. And, and some actually think that Levi and Matthew are the same person and probably the person who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And that's debated, but that seems to be the consensus for the most part. Jesus only says two words to this guy, and they're the same two words he offered to Peter and the other fishermen that he invited earlier. It's simple. Follow me. It's the invitation. And just like these fishermen, Levi is willing to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. And this raises a significant question for us in ministry. Are we willing? Am I willing? Are you willing to leave it all behind to follow Jesus? And many of you guys listening right now, you guys are probably responding, yeah, of course. And, and, and I would say, yeah, sure. We have, right? We are. I left the big job. I left the promising career. I left behind relationships, a way of living, and much more. And I've made my commitment here to follow and serve Jesus. And we praise God for this because without you making a decision like that, many of the ministries around us would not be happening. So we thank you for that. We praise God for that. But, but have we really left everything? Do we always leave everything behind? Have you left your internal desires to be great behind? Have you left your desire to be famous behind? To be known behind? To be loved by all kinds of people behind? Have you left behind your desire for comfort and convenience behind? Have we left these things behind? Because I'll be honest, I'm just get candid for a minute. Like if you're like me, the answer for a lot of these questions is actually n no, not always. It's really hard sometimes to leave behind these desires to be great or to be loved or the applause that we sometimes need. And so have we really left everything behind? Because I think Jesus is really interested in us being his disciples, leaving everything behind. That's what the fishermen did on the shore of the Galilee Sea, when Jesus invited them to follow him, they left everything behind in chapter 5, verse 11 of Luke. And that's what Levi does here. He leaves everything behind. And yet, it's tough because you even notice in the disciples' conversations later on in the Gospels, they have this struggle, this desire to be great. It was a common desire in ministry. I've met so many pastors and ministry leaders who have this desire to be great, to be famous, to be known. We dress a certain way. We speak a certain way. We try to get people to, to see us as a, in a certain light. We want to be known, and it's, it's not good. We're not leaving everything behind, apparently. We're not leaving ourselves behind. But I think Jesus asks us, and when the disciples are having this conversation and debate about who's the greatest, he gets in their face and he says, guys, cut it out. They have that conversation on their way, on their way during Holy Week. And Jesus turns to them and he says, what are you guys discussing? And they say, well, we're designed to be great. And Jesus says, no, stop it. None of that. In my kingdom, Jesus says, in my kingdom, in my kingdom, we will serve and we will humble ourselves because that is the way I'm going to show you right now as I climb upon a tree and give myself up for the forgiveness of sin and the healing of all humanity. And it raises a crucial question right now in this episode. Am I willing to leave behind everything? That includes like my preferences. 
Do you know how many people I meet in the Christian world? And many of you can resonate with this because you're meeting them too. Do you know how many people we encounter and meet that seem to have their preferences locked and loaded and they're unwilling to let go of their preferences for what scripture version we read or what songs we sing in church or how we sing them or the style of dress that someone's wearing when they do a certain sacred element. We have so many preferences and it's so hard for us to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. Let's go back to the passage for a minute. Let's think about this passage. There's so much here. Jesus takes Levi under his wing as his disciple and they go to Levi's house. Levi invites over a crowd. He's like the best missionary you could ever encounter. And we've talked about mission already a little bit in this series, but Levi is like on mission right away. He invites over a crowd of all of his friends and partners in crime. I don't even know if we can call this like a small group, but it's a large group. Maybe it's a medium-sized group. Like this is a group, right? You got a party going on in the house. It's a banquet. It's food. There's intimate conversation happening all in the presence of Jesus. And look who Levi invites. Look who come in verse 29. There's a large crowd of tax collectors and many others who we learn later in the eyes of the Pharisees are sinners. So we got sinners, tax collectors, Jesus, his disciples, and somewhere along the way, there's a group of religious leaders too, the Pharisees. Now, Pharisees would never have associated with these guys. The Pharisees, we can't think the Pharisees are in the house with them. That's not going to be the way it worked. It's probably like outside the house, on the way or on the road, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saw what was unfolding. Jesus walking with all these tax collectors and sinners and disciples and Levi. And the Pharisees are sitting there like, dude, they pull Peter aside maybe. And there's like, Peter, what, what's going on? What is going on? Your rabbi's eating with sinners and your rabbi's drinking. Your rabbi's drinking with sinners and tax collectors. What's important to see is that in this whole mix, this party and even the party on the outside in the streets is a large mix of random people and quite diverse people. You got hated, despised tax collectors all the way to the educated, educated and revered religious elite. And in the middle of it all sits Jesus unfazed. And I love it when the Pharisees ask the disciples why Jesus is doing what he's doing. The disciples don't even get to answer it in the passage. It's Jesus who answers the question. So we know Jesus is within earshot of the Pharisees. Whether he's in the house with these tax collectors and sinners or on his way there or on the front porch, we don't know. But what we know is that Jesus turns and he gives them a very pointed answer. And he says, if you look at the passage, he says, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous. That's important. I don't think we all feel that all the time. Think about that for a minute. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but he came to call sinners like myself and like you listening to this to repentance. That's why it's vital we find the art of repentance in our ministries. But the big question I want us to think about is do our small groups in our churches, in our parachurch organizations, do our small groups look like this? If your small group looks like the many small groups that I've partook in over the past, the answer is probably not. More often than not, our small groups are filled with the same type of people. They look like us. They talk like us. They believe what we believe. We get together to rehash the same stories and dive into the same scripture passages. And that's all really good because it's important. We're 
growing in our intimacy and knowledge of Jesus. But I don't think our groups, our small groups, have the tax collectors and the sinners always present. And what I find beautiful about Levi's house is that it is a space where all are welcome. Everyone can come and eat and drink. And it's beautiful. And it's Jesus' mission. It's clearly laid out. He's here not for the righteous, but for those who are lost and least to experience repentance and healing. So if this is what Jesus' small group experience looked like, why aren't we trying to build the same type of small group experiences that are inclusive and open and geared toward the lost and those in sin? And I wrestle with this question too, so I don't feel like I'm asking you guys these questions, not thinking about them myself. I'm a pastor of discipleship and I'm trying to sort through it myself, but I am constantly asking the question, my goodness, we have more small groups in our church that are ready to take care of the, the Christians than we have for those who are lost and hurting. Where are the small groups in our church ministry programs that create space for dinner and conversation to take place? I was just at an Alpha conference a few weeks ago. I did not know what Alpha was before this, but I got a chance to get a window into what Alpha is all about. And I don't know what your guys' experience with Alpha is, whether it's positive or negative or, or you've had success or whether you even know what it is, but Alpha is an organization that really tries at least from the outside perspective looking in, it seems that it's really trying to create space for small groups to exist like this type of small group experience where the lost and the least are invited to be a part of it. And so I think that's a great place to start, a great place to think about building this type of community where everyone matters and everyone can be included because this is the type of small group Jesus is all about. And the genius behind Levi's house here, the genius behind Levi's group, is that it's simple. All it involves is food and people and drink and the presence of Jesus. And the whole time, there's no pressure for anyone in the group there to necessarily even realize that Jesus is in the room. So think about that, small group leaders listening to this. I think sometimes we have all this pressure to get people to see Jesus in the room. I think Jesus will grab people's attention when it's time for Jesus to grab their attention. That's what he does. So I think our job as leaders, as pastors, as ministry leaders in very small group contexts, I think our job is to pray. I think our job is to fast and to open our life up and ask the Lord to move and meet the people in these sacred spaces we attempt to create. But it's simple. I want to end with this story. You know, my wife and I were small group leaders for a number of years, and there was a season where we had an apartment, and we had a small group that met in the apartment. It was a bunch of young men and women, probably in their 20s and 30s, some families, some singles, some moms and dads, et cetera. We met every, every week in the apartment. We called it a living room group, and it was fun. We enjoyed it. We enjoyed every single person that walked through those doors, and we got a chance to meet and get to know. There was one point in time where it was early on, and, and there was a— Two guys in the group that, you know, grew up in the Christian home, they loved Jesus, they were excited to go fishing, and so they asked me about going fishing with them for a weekend trip. Now, I love fishing too, and I was very excited about this, and I was like, well, yeah, let's do it, and one guy had a boat, and it looked like it was going to be a great time in Wisconsin, we were going to go and fish the great state of Wisconsin, and I said, well, we're going to invite the other guy, right? There's only four guys in the group at the time. And they looked at me and they're like, well, you know, we, we thought maybe we should, just the three of us would go. And I was puzzled. And I said, well, why? And they're like, well, you know, because it might change the dynamic. And I understood 
where they were coming from because the one guy who had been coming to our group was very vocal and frustrated with Christianity. He had been excluded in a number of different cases throughout his life from Christians in the past. And so he had kind of this edge towards Christianity. He'd been jaded, and uh, rightly so. I, I kind of empathized with his perspective. I understood it. And so he was already kind of bitter and angry about a number of things, and he kind of would float in and out of our group, but he was fairly consistent. So, you know, I considered him a member of the group. And I turned to these two guys and I said, guys, I would love to go on this trip, but I can't go. I can't go without him. And they looked at me like, are you serious? I said, yeah, I'm serious. And I I wrestled. I remember wrestling with this with my wife and praying about it and thinking about it. And I remember the day I just said, I said, look, guys, I said, this sounds like an awesome trip. I'm so glad that you've invited me to go. But if you're not going to invite him, I think I'm not going to go either because I don't want him to be excluded. I want him to be a part of it. And so a few days, it was radio silence. I didn't know if anything was going to happen. And then it turned out that the guys came around and they, they were both like, you know what, let's just do it. That's fine. Let's do it. And so we did. We invited this guy. And man, it was a blast for a number of reasons. And I think we enjoyed ourselves. We laughed a lot. We caught a lot of fish. And we got to know each other at a much deeper level. And you know what? Today, that guy that almost was excluded, that guy today is a chaplain in a hospital with a wonderful family doing amazing work in ministry because he decided to go on to get an MDiv to find ways to pastor people. He felt the calling God had placed on his heart. This was the same guy who was edged and jaded about Christianity. And I think I noticed over the course of many years, God constantly with his hand on this guy, wanting this guy to jump into ministry. And I wonder sometimes, what if we had excluded him and he didn't count in that small group? I know God's way bigger than that and God can do anything. So maybe God would have still worked it out. But I sometimes think, man, we wanted to create a moment, a space where everyone matters because that's the kind of group that Jesus is all about creating. So I want to encourage you guys, have courage, be brave, take a stand to those who don't want the outsiders in and ask them. If those outsiders aren't in, then I'm not in either. What would that look like for you to say that? Because I think we as leaders set the tone. We as leaders set the tone. So we want a group that's only insiders. That's what we're going to get. But if we want a group that Jesus is all about, which includes the outsiders, we need to do it ourselves, set the tone. And that's what we will get when we create small groups where everyone matters. I'll tell you what, we create spaces for people like Levi to grow. And guess what Levi ends up doing? He writes a gospel known as the book of Matthew. I want to thank all of you ministry leaders for tuning into this episode of Transforming Discipleship Podcast, a podcast brought to you by smallgroups.com. We are continuing to pray for you and your ministries. We hope to meet you one day. We pray that you'll continue to find ways to create small groups where everyone matters all the time. If you're looking for books and other training resources to help you build your small group ministry, please visit smallgroups.com today as it's always our pleasure to help you find the best resources possible to grow your small groups.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.